live from Liverpool, the Dark Paranormal, Season 5. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Dark Paranormal, Season 5. I can't believe we're already at Episode 9, our penultimate episode of this season. And of course, after next week's season finale, we'll take a short break before returning for season six. As many of you long-time listeners will be aware, we alternate seasons between true listener paranormal experiences and some of the more famous cases that you may have heard of. But of course, we deliver them in the style of the dark paranormal, hopefully adding an extra scare, an extra edge to some of the more better-known stories. We've already had a number of you listeners get in touch with suggestions for Season 6, but there's always room for more. So, if you have a famous case that you'd like us to take a look at in the next season, email thedarkparanormal at hotmail.com and maybe Season 6 will feature one of your favourite paranormal experiences. Today, we've decided there'll be no adverts in the middle of the show. Now, although adverts are pivotal to the success of the show, at least a couple of times in each season, I've made a decision to just have a nice run-through of the paranormal experience. By way of a little thank you for all of the support you've shown over these last five seasons, so there'll be no need to have your finger hovering over that skip button today. Now, although adverts do help the show exist, the main reason you're hearing these words right now is largely due to our fantastic team over at Patreon. We've built a fantastic team of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over there, and when you sign up to our Patreon, not only do you support the show, you also receive these shows ad-free and days before anyone on the main feed. Not only that, you receive a weekly podcast for Patreons only called Dark Bites a show which I am happy to say runs each and every Sunday, even on the downtime in between seasons. It truly is a great group of people over there, and we'd like to extend an invitation to you. Why not treat yourself for less than the cost of a cup of coffee a month and get those ad-free early releases and binge the back catalogue of Dark Bites? And of course, we'll give you a thank you shout-out on the show, just like these wonderful new team members. Lorna Walt, Jennifer James, Kat Desaid, Nicola Marira, Matthew Pennewell, Amanda Jane, Susan Burkholz, Gretchen Raish, Jimmy, Natalie Davis, Tyler Arrowsmith, Sydney, Linda Hayden, Caitlin Woods, Paul McDermott, Jade Pereira, Nicola Devereaux, Maya Adams, Bonnie, Kath Doherty, Tommy Jordan, Oscar Vivi, Bam Blades, Steve Sant, Pranjal Tiwari, Tala, Samantha Dool, Caro Montoya, Cara Catlin, Nadia and Akoya Montez. Thank you so much, guys. Your support literally keeps the show going. Don't forget, if you'd like to support the show and get all the extra content, head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. Now, let's get to why we're all here. To hear a true paranormal experience, this week sent in from one of our listeners who has chose to call herself Sarah for the purposes of this story. Sometimes a true paranormal experience lands in my inbox that reminds me that the paranormal can sometimes just have a skimming touch on your life. But it doesn't make it any less terrifying or life-altering 
And that's exactly where today's true paranormal experience sits. So please, make yourself comfortable, lower the lights, and leave your disbelief at the door as we take a look at the case of the haunted orphan. My name is Sarah, and I'm a recently retired social worker from Manchester, England. I've decided to write in with my story after hearing so many other people share their experiences, and also hearing them say it's been cathartic for them. My experience has been the one thing that's happened to me that I simply can't explain. Something that, as soon as it enters my thoughts, I try desperately to push out because of the sense of unease that it gives me. The feeling, well, the knowledge actually, that there's more to life than what we can see, hear or touch. And in this instance anyway, it can be something very dark. I've changed names to protect those involved and their families. This was in the early 80s. I remember it being a cold November's afternoon and I was sat in a small office with my line manager. I just explained in a very tense and awkward way that I didn't feel like I was supported in my role, that the hours I needed to work to fulfil my obligations were actually well above my salaried pay. I was working 60 hours a week and only being paid for 40. The moral dilemma that both I and a lot of my social work colleagues feel is that we get into this line of work to make a difference, to help youngsters who've had their life shattered, normally through something horrible and bleak. And no one I've met in this line of work does it for the money. You have to emotionally invest in each person. However, we've been asked to do the same amount of work with less and less resource and assistance. Therefore, it's a common dilemma to either work over your hours unpaid and do that planned visit to a child, or take a stand, cancel the appointment. You surely can't be judged for refusing to work for free, right? Well, you'll find 9 out of 10 social workers will make that visit for no pay. Don't get me wrong, you expect some of that to happen. It's not a job which lends itself to a social life. But the meeting I just finished with my line manager was after a 60 plus hour week for over a year. And, more pressingly, after being attacked during a visit the week before. It was classed as a high-risk visit, and one where two workers were expected to attend. The father in the family had previously threatened a member of staff. He hated our visits. And we were building a case to have two of his children placed in care, so he was clearly on the front foot. The person due to accompany me to the meeting called in sick that day, and I suggested that we reconvene. However, I was told to go alone, as any further delays could derail the case. I won't go into details on that visit, but I was left with a broken rib and bruising to my neck. Again, it didn't really faze me, but it was really the final straw. My line manager was anxious. Well, it was him who told me to go alone. He could get in a lot of trouble 
if it came out a member of staff had been sent into an unsafe working environment after he told him to. And he knew it. He smiled a nervous smile and shook his head. Oh, it's ridiculous how many hours this place have you working, he said, trying to get on my side, despite the fact that he was the one dictating the workload. I just nodded slowly. Here's what I'll do, he started. I'm going to raise a complaint with head office on your behalf. Also, I'm going to personally pick your cases to make sure you don't go over your hours. And I'll make sure none of them are high risk. I'm not asking for special treatment, I said. No, no, he protested. It's not that, it's it's balance. You see, you've worked double what most people have, so you leave it to me. He smiled again, like he was saving the day. Just as a side note to the story, as you may have guessed, no complaint was ever filed, obviously. After a few days' holiday, which of course he insisted I take, I was given a few new cases to work on. You need a strong stomach for this job, as you can imagine. This job exists in order to support children, some of who are just a bit wayward, but largely those who've experienced trauma of some kind, or even abuse. In my first 12 months of work, I would keep a signed copy of my resignation on me, as I genuinely thought that one day I'd see or hear something that I mentally couldn't take. However, you can surprise yourself with where that line is. Or maybe you just get a bit callous to it. I don't know. One case jumped out. A 12-year-old boy, Lenny. His parents had been killed after his father had been drink-driving. Going straight from the pub to pick up his wife after her night shift, he lost control on a dual carriageway hit the central reservation and flipped the car. Both were dead by the time help arrived. The father had left Lenny asleep in bed and the police had to force themselves into the family home where they found Lenny hiding from who he thought was intruders in a wardrobe, terrified. The trauma of having some strangers break into your house as a child and then being told by those strangers that both your mother and father were dead is something too horrible to even comprehend. He was now in the care of his grandparents, the mother and father of his mother. I called the number that we had on file for the grandparents. Hi, is that Mrs Cole? It's Sarah from the social services. There was an audible sigh down the phone. Listen, we're fine. He's fine. He's been through enough without your lot putting the fear of God into him, she said. This, sadly, was a common response. As soon as people heard social services, they assumed we were hell-bent on taking their children. Like we got some kind of kick out of it, like some Victorian child catcher. In truth, the goal is for a child to be happy and safe in a healthy, functioning family. Now... Who wouldn't think that was a good thing? But no, people assumed you were out to pick faults, to judge, scribble secret notes about them and make a lot of tutting sounds. It was a tough stereotype to try and break, especially with new cases. And Mrs Cole, we know what Lenny's been through and what you're going through. 
We just need to make sure you're getting all the support that you need, that's all. Well, I... The line had interference on it. I remember it being so loud that I pulled the phone away from my ear, and people in the office could hear it as well. I hung the phone up and called back. The phone was engaged. I tried a few more times over the next hour or so, but it was engaged each time. So I grabbed my car keys and headed out to the grandparents' house. The street the grandparents lived on was a terraced run of houses on the edge of a council estate. There was the usual mix of immaculate gardens right next door to overgrown ones with a used mattress propped up against the fence. Such is the mix of people that mashed together here. Their garden was quite well kept and tidy. It's funny looking back in this business. The garden of someone's house is usually a good nod towards the type of person within. So this was a good sign for Lenny and the Coles. As I knocked on the door, I could hear all hell breaking loose inside the house. I heard someone approach the front door and unlock it. It opened a small way before catching on the door chain. A very small elderly woman scowled at me. Mrs. Cole, I'm... You're the social worker, aren't you? Why did you put the phone down on me? Still the screams from inside continued. I, I... I didn't. Listen, is everything okay in there? I asked, trying to look over her head. What are you trying to say? Snapped the woman. You think we'd hurt our own grandson? No, I replied. But... No, no, said Mrs. Cole, quickly unlocking the door. Come in, why not? You think we are kids. Right, come on. She was trying to prove a point, marching ahead of me in the hall. Go on then, she said, arms folded outside what I presume was the living room door nodding for me to go inside. It was clear this was where the screams were coming from. I forced a quick smile and pushed open the living room door. It was a dimly lit room, heavy neck curtains covering the windows and the thick smell of nicotine hanging in the air. Lenny was stood behind the couch, jammed between its back and the wall, and he was screaming, pointing to the corner of the room, namely to a small triangular section just behind the television. An elderly man I assumed to be Mr. Cole was stood in the middle of the living room. He was shaking and holding out a packet of crisps towards Lenny. Every now and then, a tear would roll down his cheek. He's been doing this for an hour, said Mr. Cole. He keeps saying someone's in the corner. Mr. Cole nodded towards the TV. Trying to take control of the situation somewhat, I told Mr. Cole to go into the hall with his wife. Once he left, I walked over and pulled the neck curtains to the side. The sunlight came beaming in. I turned the TV on too. My thought being the change of scenery may somewhat aid him out of this event. Slowly the screaming became just a high-pitched noise which accompanied his deep breaths. I could tell he was coming out of it. So I continued to talk asking about the cartoon on the TV or what his favourite football team was. He didn't answer, but his breath continued to calm. Eventually, he moved his eyes from the corner of the room to me. Almost like an assist from the heavens, an ice cream van pulled into the street. A twitch in his face told me this could be the way in. Come on, I'll get us all an ice cream, 
but you have to come out from behind that couch, okay? He nodded and squeezed around the side of the couch. Seeing us both return with an ice cream, Mrs. Cole thawed somewhat and she smiled and rubbed Lenny's head. Ooh, that looks nice, love, she said. Mr. Cole was in the kitchen, staring out of the back window. Lenny headed up to his room and myself and Mrs. Cole joined her husband at the kitchen table. Listen, I'm sorry about before, said Mrs. Cole. Oh, there's no need. We get it all the time, I smiled. So, how's he doing? Mr. Cole shot a glance to his wife. He's fine, she quickly responded. Mary, muttered Mr. Cole. Tell her. Mrs. Cole shot a look back at her husband. Tell me what, Mrs. Cole, I asked. Call me Mary, love, and do you want a cup of tea? Mary, said her husband. Oh, bloody hell, John, I was just offering her a cup of tea. Mary, tell her or I will, he said, and they exchanged a long heated glance with each other. I've seen this before. I knew what was coming. You see, occasionally when a child finds itself in a dire situation, the first place they end up is the grandparents. Now, sometimes it's fine, but other times it's too much for the grandparents. It can be down to age or health, or unfortunately sometimes because they just don't want to do it. But it's understandably tough to say out loud, he can't stay here, when you're talking about a defenceless child from your own family. And the conversation usually starts like this. I readjusted my seat and in my head, I prepared all my I understand statements. So Mrs. Cole began. Well, you see, the thing is, love, he's a wonderful lad and all that, and we love him to bits, but here it comes, I thought. Well, he's brought something with him. I was caught off guard. Sorry, how do you mean? Like a pet? Again, the couple exchanged glances. Now, Mary continued, staring at her teacup and thumbing the edge as if to remove a mark. Not like a pet, love. Like a ghost. Mr. Cole lowered his gaze to stare at the table. His face portrayed how embarrassed he was by that sentence. But then again, he didn't dispute it. Do you believe in ghosts, love? asked Mary. In truth, no. Sure, I'd had some weird experiences in my life. Deja vu, slight premonitions, but the sort of thing that everyone experiences, even if just once in the life. But ghosts? Can't really say I do, I replied, still trying to keep some form of a smile on my face. Neither did we, interjected Mr. Cole, lighting up a cigarette and sitting back in his chair. There was silence in the room as Mr. Cole bellowed a big release of smoke into the air. I was lost here. I knew pretty much every direction to turn in all of the situations that this job had landed me in, but I wasn't sure what I could say in this situation. Then, last week, he done that, said Mr. Cole, and he nodded towards the couch in the living room. Exactly what you've just seen him do. He sits there, right as rain, Then he screams, darts behind the couch and starts saying something's in the corner. He pointed his cigarette towards the TV. He just goes hysterical. 
Mrs. Cole looked at her husband with sadness in her eyes. It breaks John's heart, it does, she muttered, reaching out and patting the back of his hand. Then he eventually goes upstairs to his room, continued John. And then, John checked his watch, then stumped his cigarette out in the ashtray. About twenty minutes later, heavy footsteps came from above our head, literally making the solitary kitchen bulb jolt with each step. Those weren't footsteps of a twelve-year-old boy. Oh, look at that, right on time, said John with almost a gallows humour. Now watch this, love, said John, pointing through the kitchen door towards the hallway. You could see part of the stairs through the slatted banister. Slowly, lethargic step by lethargic step, the lower half of Lenny appeared coming down the stairs. As his journey continued downstairs, he disappeared out of our eyesight to the right of the doorframe, and then his footsteps stopped as if he'd paused once he'd reached the hallway. We sat in silence for at least five minutes. My mind raced. What was he doing in that tiny hallway for so long, not making a noise? Was he just stood there stationary? He must be, I thought, or we'd at least hear something. And then we did hear something. And I prayed that the silence would return, because what we heard was a deep, visceral growl. Mary looked at me to check that I could hear it. Do you have a dog? I whispered. Mary shook her head, and then something caught our attention at the doorframe. It was Lenny, but only his right arm, right leg, and the side of his head, as he stood half hidden against the doorframe. He must have been nose to the wood he seemed that close. Lenny, love, come and say hello to Sarah said Mary. Lenny didn't reply. Did you like your ice cream, Lenny? I asked in my most friendly sing-song voice. Again, Lenny didn't reply. At least, at first. Then his arm raised and he extended a finger, pointing right at me, still hiding the majority of himself behind the wall. It's rude to point, Lenny, you know that said Mr. Cole. From looking at Mr. Cole, I could see he was shaking again, as he was when I arrived and he was trying to calm Lenny. I thought he was stressed at the situation, but this seemed more like fear. His eyes darted from the cigarette packet he was fiddling with back to the doorway repeatedly, like a bullied child does when trying to seek an escape route, but also wants to keep an eye on the danger. Lenny's arm remained outstretched, pointing at me. "'Are you pointing at me because you want to speak to me, Lenny?' I asked. Lenny's arm slowly came down, and he leant in ever so slightly, so you could now see one eye and part of his mouth. His eye looked bloodshot, like he'd been crying upstairs. I was about to stand and go over to him, but then I noticed his mouth moved forming into a smile, and his eyes lifted to show that this was apparently a genuine smile. So I smiled back. Then he muttered something, really low, his eye locked on me. It sounded like 
House the rubbish. What was that, Lenny? I didn't quite hear you. Even lower, he repeated the line, as if it was some kind of game. House the rubbish. The sentence just didn't make sense. Sorry, Lenny, can you... How's the rib, bitch? He shouted, and then ran upstairs, laughing to himself. I was in shock. As if on cue, I turned in a particular way, which caused the usual pain to shoot through my still-healing rib. Did you hear it? said Mary. Er, yes, he shouted it loud enough, I said, rubbing my side. My mind was wearing... This was the most bizarre thing I'd ever encountered. That was targeted. From the pointing to the seeming knowledge of my broken rib. If it was a coincidence, it was a terrifyingly accurate one. No, not what he said, said Mary. The voice he said it in. That was a grown man's voice. And she was right. It hadn't registered properly due to the focus being on me and of course the content of what was said. But Mary was right. That was the voice of an angry, fully grown male, not a timid schoolboy. This happens every few days, said John. The first time it happened, I went out to the hallway. He had his head pressed against the frame and was headbutting it slowly, but really hard. I thought he was sleepwalking, so I put my hand between his head and the wood so he didn't hurt himself. And then he bit me. John lifted up his hand to show a bandaged finger. He got a good chunk too. John took a sip of his tea. Tell her the rest of the story, John, said Mary. John shook his head as he swallowed down his sip. No point, that's the main thing that happened. I'll tell her then, said Mary defiantly. John just shook his head. Whatever Mary was about to say... John clearly didn't want me to hear it. So, like John said, said Mary, he bit the side of his finger off, looked up, spat it in his face, and said, We're enjoying your daughter down there, John, and then ran up to his room laughing. John chased after him. I tell you what, if he could have got hold of him. Mary paused, remembering my job role. Anyway, he got to the top of the stairs, and he got pushed. Mary forced both her arms out to show me he was pushed. By Lenny, I asked. No, said Mary. This is what I keep saying. By whatever he's brought into this house. I was in a complete and utter daze. This was meant to be a simple case. Yet it was rapidly turning into the strangest case I'd ever worked on. A loud, chilling scream came from upstairs. I jumped in my seat. Mr. and Mrs. Cole just sat there unsurprised. Mr. Cole even let out a sigh of almost relief. Should we not go and check on him? He sounded in pain, I implored. Mary stood up and shook her head. No, that's it over now. Won't happen again for a few days. Mr. Cole almost became a different person from the shaking, anxious man. That's almost like a signal that we've got through it. He'll be asleep now, out like a light. It really takes it out of him. I was just bewildered. And how is he afterwards? I asked. Oh, he's fine. He's right as rain. 
He won't remember a thing, will he, Mary? Mary stood and collected the cups, shaking her head. Oh, no, no, he'll be laughing and joking like a good'un. I'll, I'll be honest, Mrs. Cole, I said. I don't know what to suggest here. It's a bit out of my comfort zone. Almost like a different person now. Mrs. Cole smiled and waved her hand. Oh, that's fine, love, don't worry. To be honest, I should have known you couldn't do anything. I'm on a waiting list for a house call from the parish priest. I just thought you might have known someone in your place who dealt with this kind of thing. All whilst this was happening, and despite what I'd seen, heard and felt in terms of knowing something paranormal was going on here, I also knew I had to play this by the book. And I also knew the next words out of my mouth were going to lose all the goodwill that had been built up so far. I'm going to recommend Lenny sees a psychiatrist. The colds glared at each other, and then me. It's not his brain that's wrong, love, it's his spirit, said Mr. Cole. All the while I could feel that a verbal explosion was building up inside Mary. Well, none of us in this room are experts, so what we need to do is... I'll tell you what you need to do, you need to get the hell out of my house, Mary finally burst. Her shields were back up, and rightly or wrongly, I was back in the position of a child snatcher again. I apologised, I said we'd be in touch, and I meekly returned to my car. Back at the office, I wrote my report in full, as it happened, more or less verbatim. The next day, my ever-so-caring line manager said he'd read my report and then immediately asked if I needed more time off if I was on any medication he should know about. Basically implied that I'd wrote a fantastical piece of nonsense in my report, and I was clearly losing my marbles. I there and then asked for a transfer to another team elsewhere in the city, and he was more than happy to oblige. Given, in his mind, I was now a troublemaker on the edge, and so Lenny's case was passed on to someone else. Lenny would pop into my mind over the years and I would always wonder how everything turned out for them. Then last year, I read on a local internet page that he died after a drink-driving accident, flipping his car, exactly the same way his parents died. That kind of put the cherry on the cake for me in terms of just how strange, bizarre and jarringly otherworldly that entire section of my life was. Do I believe in such things now? Well, I'm more open. But I will hand on heart say that something, other, was impacting the lives of that poor, poor family. I mentioned at the start of the show just how interesting these cases that seemingly skim into your life and back out can be. And without giving out any information about the submitter of the story, I can confirm that they've told me this event took place just over a two-week period. And they've also said they've never encountered anything else they'd consider paranormal either side of this incident. It's a truly wonderful paranormal experience from a story point of view because it doesn't give us any answers. Just like a good song, we're left to draw our own conclusions on exactly what took place with that family. 
But that about wraps things up for this episode. So again, I'd like to thank you sincerely for choosing to spend your time here with me on The Dark Paranormal. I'll be back with you next week for the Season 5 finale, and trust me, you don't want to miss it. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us, thedarkparanormal at hotmail.com. We'll also be starting an Instagram page shortly. And of course, we're over on the app Repod, where you can comment and listen to podcasts and chat to the host too. But for now, remember, when you're discussing the paranormal, always leave your disbelief at the door. And I'll see you next week here on The Dark Paranormal. <laughs>